Uh, we're in a study on um, the uh, book of Hebrews, and we've been talking about angels and humans and Jesus. Oh, my. We've been talking about this. Um, and this book is, it's all through it. And Hebrews is not an easy, lightweight book. Uh, one of the things, at least here for First Church, and how we do things, how I like to do things, we study books at a time. And between books, we may do some other things, but we study books at a time. We study them verse by verse. We wade through it, uh, whether we like it or not. And uh, we go through difficult stuff. We go through hard stuff uh, and stuff. Now, this is where, you know, I like it. We go through stuff where history is incredibly important to help us as we, as we understand. So I, I want to read to you um, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. Verse 5, it is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, a son of man that you care for him? You made them a little lower than angels, you crowned them with glory and honor, and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet, at present, we do not see everything subject to them, but we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So, quick review. We started off in chapter 1, the first four verses. We looked at eight things. I'm going to flash them up there. Don't try to write them down. If you need them, I can send them to you, whatever. We looked at eight things. Jesus is the revelation of God. Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is the rightful owner of everything. Jesus is the creator, sustainer of the universe. Jesus is, Jesus, I can't even say Jesus anymore. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus is the remedy for sin. Jesus is our king. Jesus is better. This is the whole book now. In the first four verses, he summed up the whole book. He's gonna go through all of this, talking about what, what God has done and ultimately saying over and over and over, and he says it a lot. We're going to hear many of the same themes in this book multiple times. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Right? And then in chapter, uh, um, chapter 1, verses 5 through 14, we looked at things he said he never said to angels, things he did say to angels, and then things he said to Jesus. And he's showing this distinction, showing that Jesus is higher Jesus is higher than the angels. And then at the beginning of chapter 2, we start talking. He says, now, we've got to pay careful attention. He, he uses a real strong uh, series of words to tell them, pay attention. Focus here. Why? He says, because we have a tendency to drift away. And how are we going to com combat that drift in our lives? We have to focus. We have to keep our eyes on, on what's important. And that is Jesus. And now... We're going to talk about, in verse 5, the place of angels. Now, here he goes. He's talking about angels again. And he's saying, it is not to angels that he, he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking. All right. Now, let's just remember something. Again, we're going back, and this is history. We really need to dig into this stuff. I like history. If you don't like history, yikes. These are Hebrew Christians who are struggling. They're struggling with their faith. Some of, some of the people he's writing to probably are Hebrews who are maybe have heard. They're not sure. They don't know if they believe. So he's speaking to people who have a specific mindset. He's speaking to people with a specific background. 
They know the Old Testament backwards and forwards. And so he's addressing the question, what is the role of angels in this kingdom that Jesus Christ has begun? What is their role? And that gets to a question that we had a few weeks ago when we started off, and we're gonna dig into it a little deeper because I didn't wanna overwhelm you in one shot. So we're gonna dig in a little deeper. Why is the writer of Hebrews so, he, uh, not obsessed, he emphasizes angels so much? What's the deal with angels? And we talked about that a little bit, but let me give you a little more background, all right? Because when you look at the influences that were going on at that time amongst the Jews, the major emphasis in uh, things that, that had a lot of impact on Jewish life in the early BCs and then into AD, one of them was a group of people called the, the Essenes. Uh, they lived, a big group of them at least, lived in a community called Qumran. Now, if you've heard, if Qumran rings a bell, it's where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, right? So it's an important, incredibly important place. But I used to always think that the Essenes were just like this little tiny group of nobodies that lived out in the wilderness by themselves. And it turns out that a number of historians, uh, Pliny the Younger, a famous Roman historian, mentions them. They had that much influence that their influence made it to Rome. And he mentions these Essenes and, and a little bit about them. And other people do too. And so what happened? Those are the people we found the Dead Sea Scrolls. That is, they had an incredibly high regard for, for the scriptures. And when they began to realize that quite possibly the Romans were gonna sweep through and conquer them, they hid their most important things of their lives away in caves. And it was the scriptures. They didn't hide jewels. They didn't hide money. They didn't hide anything else. The most important thing to them were their scriptures, and they put them in little, uh, looks just like this, the top comes off, you slide a roll of scripture because the scriptures were in rolls then, and you put the cap on, and they put them in caves. Some of them were almost inaccessible on the, on the side of a cliff face. One of the caves that was found was on the side of a cliff face so that no one would get in there, but the Essenes said, we're thinking we could come back and get them if we survive this battle. This is what they look like. I should have blown it up. You could have read it with me. Um, <laughs> Right, it goes backwards, just remember that. It's Hebrew, it's gonna go backwards. So this is what, some of, this is what a, one of the better ones would have looked like, with, but they found some just like this. I mean, amazing finds that have changed things. Uh, they were found in the 1940s and has changed everything about, we know about scriptures in an incredible way. The accuracy of scriptures, the, the, the faithfulness of the people who copy them, just unbelievable. And so there are these people. They lived by these scriptures. I mean, they were like Pharisees on steroids. They had extreme views of their daily living. They would give up almost everything and share everything, almost like a commune. And we know this. We know that there was places where they lived, some of them out in the wilderness, and some of them were also in throughout uh, the, the, the Jewish community. So they were known, and, and what they uh, believed was known. So here's a few things that they believed. They believed there was two messianic figures coming. One would be a priest and one would be a king. They also expected another person from Deuteronomy 18, a prophet to show up. And this prophet would come along the lines of Melchizedek, the prophet who's mentioned, priest and king, who's mentioned in the Old Testament. They had strong ties in what they thought Melchizedek was gonna kind of re-show up in their lives. That's why, as we get further into this book, Melchizedek's going to come up because the writer's going to address all these things. They expected the reestablishment of the original sacrificial system, which they believed they had strayed from by, uh, in, the current, in their current lives. 
they pattern their life after an idealized version of living in the wilderness. They thought about how the Jews, when they were leaving Egypt, spent 40 years in the wilderness, and they, and they would look at that and go, that was when we were pure. So we're gonna go out into the wilderness, and we're gonna live in the wilderness to have that kind of purity, right? And so they hid, they, they withdrew. When the Romans came, they hid their writings. Um, they also believed that angels, after these messianic people came and Melchizedek showed up, angels, especially the angel Michael, would rule the world. Angels would rule the world, and especially Michael the archangel. And they were widespread with their influence in, Ju in Judaism. So what is going on now? We're around 60 AD, maybe 70, somewhere in that time period. And there are people who are beginning to be persecuted. There are people who are beginning to struggle. There are people who are beginning to go and endure horrific, tragic issues and problems in their lives. And they're beginning to wonder, is this, is, is this right? Should I keep following? I don't understand. Is Jesus really the answer here? Or maybe, maybe, maybe these people had it right. Maybe they were right. They told us there would be suffering. Maybe they had it right. And so there were people who were struggling with their faith, and the book of Hebrews is addressing those struggles. And this helps us see why the writer is making key points. In chapters one and two, he's gonna say Jesus is better than the angels. In chapters three and four, he's gonna say Jesus is better than Moses. In chapters five through seven, he's gonna say Jesus is a better high priest, better than Melchizedek. In chapters eight and nine, he's gonna say Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant, better than what they had in the wilderness. In chapter 10, he's gonna say Jesus is the better sacrifice. You wanna go back to the old sacrificial system? No, here's the best. This is the sacrifice. And then in chapters 11 to 13, he's gonna say, Jesus has brought about the better salvation, the best salvation. And so he's building a point. The kingdom, this kingdom that is being established is not a kingdom of angels. It's not under the authority of angels. Now, I know, the first thing I, you can think of is, okay, Bob, that's kind of interesting, but so what? So what? What does that mean to me? We're not struggling with that. Oh, but are you sure? Because here it is, it might not be angels, but we do struggle with putting other things before Christ. We do struggle with letting things get elevated above Christ, of lo losing sight of the fact that Jesus is better. And we start focusing on other things. It doesn't matter what they are. It's these other things. Our culture devalues the supernatural. Manny was just talking about that. It devalues the worship of the supernatural. But our culture has other temples. Our culture has, has other places where people go to worship. I go to one a few times a week. It's called Planet Fitness. And some people go there, and that's their worship, right? It can be all kinds of things. It can be money. It can be sex. It can be stuff. It can be Botox and lip fillers. That's what I struggle with. It can be <laughs> See, I don't know why I said that. I'm sorry. It could be power, it could be fame, it could be intelligence. It goes on and on and on. It becomes things that we put in front of Jesus. Suddenly, they look better. Suddenly, they occupy us uh, more and, and more of the time, our time and more of our, our money, maybe, more of our influence, whatever. Those things then become just what those angels were to them, something that gets elevated above Jesus. 
So I want you to see the place of angels. He's saying they're not in charge. All right, second thing I want you to see is, is the marvel of humanity in these verses. This is verses six through eight. He says, but there is a place where someone has testified, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, a son of man that you care for them? I love, I love how he says, I'm breaking right into this, yes. I, I love how he says, but there is a place where someone has said. Okay, he's quoting Psalm 8. This is a Psalm of David. This is a Psalm written by the most famous, most successful king in the history of Israel. And the writer of Hebrews goes, oh, some guy wrote this. Some man, somebody wrote this. Somebody wrote this. Why is he doing that? We see this happen, especially in this book, but in other parts of the Bible. And what is he saying? He's saying it's not the human being that's important in this situation. It's that these are the words of God. He's saying that. These are the words of God. David doesn't matter. God could have spoken through a donkey, and he has, right? So, doesn't matter who he's speaking through. All right, so anyways, that's, that's free. There's a place where someone has testified, what is mankind that you're mindful of them, a son of man that you care for them? You made them a little lower than angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. And putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. So what is he saying here? If you read this psalm, this is what's happening. David has gone out at night, one night, and he's just looking at the sky. He's looking at the stars. And the vastness of the universe is beginning to overwhelm him. He goes, why do you even care about us? You know, when we started going to Arizona to work on the Navajo Nation 27 years ago, however long it's been, um, when I first started taking groups there, there was no electricity. There was no power. There was no running water, per se. It was, it was, we were just in the desert. And at night, we would lay down, and it, th there was a generator, and I'd always, you know, whatever time it was, I'd say, okay, buddy, the generator's going off, you know, and somebody, no, no, I need to dry my hair. I'm like, nah, I don't even care about your hair. Right? I'd turn the generator off, um, and absolute darkness. And I'm telling you, I can remember one of the first times just laying down and looking up at the sky and being stunned at seeing more stars than I had ever seen in my life. Just levels and levels and levels of stars. And then seeing this blink, 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 blink. And somebody there who was up on it said, we're supposed to be able to see the space station tonight. And there it goes. And then, psh, a shooting star. And I remember laying there going, God, you are awesome, and I am tiny. Look at all those stars. I'm, and that's what happened to David in Psalm 8. He looked up, and he said, oh, my goodness, there's so many stars. God, I am so tiny. And he said, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, the son of man that you care for them? He said, who are we? We're tiny, infinitely small specks in a giant place. And this is what's going on here. David is looking up the sky. He's overwhelmed. He's overwhelmed. He's seeing all this unbelievable vastness and complexity, and he's just thinking, God did this. He did this. So why do you care about us, God? Why are we so insignificant, and yet you say we're so special? You say... You made them a little lower than angels. You crowned them with glory and honor. You put everything under their feet. Well, I want you to look at two things. 
First of all, I want you to look at this word mindful. I don't usually do this, but sometimes I think it's maybe just kind of good, maybe kind of fun, just to put it up there in the Greek. This, this is minesco, all right? This is the word for mindful. And it is a word that is full of meaning. It's just a, a very cool word. It means to remember or to think about, the, think about somebody with the purpose of, and this is what's key, to remember to think about somebody with the purpose of caring for them with the purpose of loving them, with the purpose of serving them. It has the idea of entering into their life. See, he's already, even David, not even maybe, or the writers who translated this, not even thinking that maybe they're starting to touch on this thing of incarnation, that God would enter in. He says, why do you care so much for us that you would even enter into our lives? Here's this word used in another uh, place in Hebrews. Continue to remember, that's the word, those who are in prison as if you were together with them in prison and those who are mistreated as if you yourself were suffering. He's saying, enter into it. This is one of the things we talk about that's so important in Bible study. We enter into the lives of the people we're studying so we begin to understand better how they feel, what they're going through, why they react the way they react. This is so important for us. And then the other one is this. Um, this is a piscap. Tomai, I am always struggle with the omais. It means to care for. He says, why do you care for? And that word to care for has this idea to look after, to visit with the purpose of helping. You remember when Jesus was born, the angels were astounded because he cared for us. He was mindful of us. They were overwhelmed. We were made a little lower than angels, crowned with glory and honor and given dominion. You see, this gets at something that's very key in our culture, and this is the idea of human rights. And human rights are grounded in God. There's other ways people try to find human rights, and I just want to tell you, I thought about going through all of them. Maybe I will someday. But in going through all of them, they have, they have, they have weaknesses that can, that can be very difficult to work around. Human rights have their root in God. And when we look at this passage, we see the world is for humans to rule, not angels. We see that God is mindful. He cares for us. We see that we've been crowned with glory and honor. This is inherent dignity. This passage gives dignity and honor and value to human beings. So when you're down, like you're sad, you're lonely, come back to this passage. Look it up in, in Psalm 8. Soak it in. Inherent worth comes from the fact that God created us and we are made in the image of God. Nothing else is made in the image of God. We have been crowned with glory and honor. We have substance. God says, you matter to me. And so when these negative things happen, you lose a job or you lose a relationship or you feel worthless and this voice comes along next to you in various ways for various people, this voice inside that says, you don't mean anything. You're not worth anything. No one cares about you. How do you fight that? Right here, your inherent worth in God. God says, I fight for you. God says, you mean everything to me. God says, I die for you. That's how important you are. You are not what you do. You are not your pant size or your dress size. You are not your intellect. You are not your relationships. You are not how big your house is. You're not how much money you have. Because if those things determined worth and then you lose your job or you gain weight or your mind begins to go, Ugh. or when relationships end or you're lonely or money runs out, then you are crushed. You're crushed by it. 
it's, it's, uh, it's something that just absolutely devastates you. But if your identity is on this, that you are fearfully and wonderfully made, that you are a ruler, and the God of the universe cares for you. When you get this right, nothing can shake you. Now, if this was a motivational speech, we could end right here. Just go out and know that you have dignity and honor and respect, right? But here's the problem. The problem is the end of this verse. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. There's a problem, and it is sin. And we have ruined things. You know, the author is saying, look, they were placed in this position of authority, and yet it isn't working. And we know it's not working, right? I mean, we see it. Death comes, the ultimate moment when our body succumbs to the creation. The world is broken. We are broken. What happened? And it's the fall. This all goes back to the fall with Adam and Eve. It's a familiar story. So I'm not going to rehearse that with you. Just remember this. It was the ultimate decision to put myself first. Me first. Me. It's all about me. That's what happened. And this led to shame entering the world. And then quickly blame followed, right? If you read that, that story and look at it, ultimately Adam and Eve both say to God, it's your fault this happened. Adam, that wonderful husband of the year candidate, says, the woman you gave me led me astray, right? And what, is, what does Eve say? Part of your creation led me astray, right? They both are saying to God, it's your fault. Why? Because it's all about me. And that's where things went downhill quickly. Also, in this life, the Christian life, it's not about you. You're made for this. And when you live out what you were made for, you, you find that you flourish. You find that's where joy lives. That's where joy abounds. When you get it right and live accordingly. So the fall happened. The whole world's affected by it. And so the author in Hebrews here is saying, and yet we see that is not under subjection. We see that there's disease and pain and death and evil are part of our creation. You know, sometimes I always struggle with this, and sometimes I talk to my wife about it. Should I do this? Should I do it? I share, I share things from my life. I share things from my family's life. But when I think about disease and pain and how those things are intricately now apart, they're in, they're in, our, in this creation. My daughter at 16 got lung cancer. One thing I remember is talking to the doctor, the specialist, and saying, why? In fact, what I asked him was, I said, have you done many surgeries like this on teenagers? Your, you know, lung surgery on teenagers. And he said, no, I've never done one on a teenager. And I'm like, disqualified. You know, that's my first thought, right? He goes, no, I do it on 65-year-old lifelong smokers. That's who gets this surgery. And I'm like, and he said, but he said, but it's still the same. There's no difference. It's still the same. And I said, but then, 
So why? Why does my daughter have the cancer that smokers get at 16? None of us smoke. Nobody smokes. And he said, I don't know. I don't know. It's just how things are sometimes. And uh, that was a very inadequate answer as far as I was concerned. Um, But he said, there's no reason for it as far as we can see. There's no reason for it. And so, you know, that's what he's talking about there. That's what he's talking about. Some things there's no reason for. It's because we live in this dark, sinful world where bad things happen for no reason. And we don't understand it. And sometimes, yeah, been there, done that, right? Sometimes we say, why, God? Why you do this? It's not fair. And so we struggle with it. We live in this world where we see that things are not the way they're supposed to be. And I want you to see now, because he immediately, he makes that point. He says, yet. He grabs their attention. Yet. We see now things aren't how they're supposed to be. And then what does he do? He adds the, <laughs> I was going to say the big but. He adds the, the but. Always, there's always something there. Say, aha, look at this. Think about this. He says, okay, we're not seeing things are right, but we do see Jesus who was more lower than who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And so he's telling us, he's saying, look, I want you to see something here. And this is what the bud is doing, it's grabbing your attention. He's saying, What are you focusing on? Angels? Yourself? How bad things are? And he's saying, No, focus on Jesus who was made lower than angels. And that takes us, you know, back to Philippians chapter two. Let me, let me just read this to you. And, and he says, in your relationships with one another, okay, as you are dealing with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He's saying, hey, focus on Jesus. Think about what Jesus did. That's where your focus needs to be as you endure these things. In verse 9 here that we're looking at, the origin of his death, it says, by the grace of God. The grace of God made Jesus go to the cross for me and for you. And what is the purpose? It's the very end there. He says that he might taste death for everyone. Now, that word taste is a word that, um, in English, we think of taste like you go to a tasting, and they only give you a little, right? Or you, 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 you go and you just, somebody says, ooh, this is good, taste this, right? You don't get out a big spoon. If somebody says, ooh, this soup is good, taste this. You don't get out a big ladle and go, no, 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 taste, taste, just taste. I want to have some left, you know? So what you do, you taste it. That's what we think of. Okay, that's not the word here. The word here is to fully experience. To fully experience. It's this idea that Jesus didn't, shirk a bit of it. He didn't, you know, I don't know. Sometimes I, I, think, I know it's foolish. I think sometimes how I'd be as God, and, and I, I feel like there'd be a number of times, like if, 
if I was hanging on the cross and they were mocking me, I would just go, and there'd be these piles of dust. And I go, okay, I'm going to stay up here, but I just don't want to hear your crap, right? That's how I feel. I would. I feel that way. That's why you should be thankful I'm not God, right? Because some of you would be piles of dust even now, right? I see you sleeping. Okay, so, (laughs) no, (coughs) excuse me. Stop, stop. Okay, so I also think that I would feel like going to the cross and dying, I feel like, look, I can cut a few corners here. I'm God for crying out loud. I have to take all of this. I don't have to take all this stuff. I, I, I can cut some corners. It'll still work out. Uh, but he didn't. He, he thoroughly, fully experienced death. He did it for all of us. And so we see something here. We see this king who serves by becoming a peasant. We see God, above all the angels, decide to become lower than angels for us. We see Jesus suffering shamefully, humbling himself. And now he's crowned with glory and honor, the highest high. He's gotten the lowest lows, and now he's the highest high, the king of glory and honor. All of this for us. All of this for us. So, where do we go with this? Well, the first, the obvious one, this is going to come up over and over, is where's our focus? What are we focusing on? On our problems? On possible solutions that we can kind of think up? Plan Bs that we can work up? Or are we focusing on Jesus? I am ashamed to say that sometimes when things happen in my life, I think of every way I could possibly handle it myself before it occurs to me to pray. And that is so stupid. And then I pray and I ask God to do something and I ask God to do something and then sometimes he does something amazing and I'm like, whoa, that's amazing. And I imagine God going, I could do that all the time, but you're just like diddling around with all this other stuff. You just focus on me. It won't be so amazing. It'll be normal for you. So where's our focus? As followers of Jesus, do we live before others as people who mainly just want to win? Or do we live in a way that shows them we will love them even if we lose? Do we reflect a Christ who puts others first? Or do we look like people who only think about my rights? The early church had no rights. None. And it grew like wildfire. It grew like wildfire. So, where's our focus? I think another thing is, this is the beauty of our God. Jesus got involved. He was mindful. He cared. That Remember, both of those words had the idea of coming and getting involved. Recently, um, there was a subway attack in a major city in our country. And a man got on the train that was almost full, and he started annoying a woman. And she kept saying, leave me alone. I don't know who you are. Leave me alone. And then it got worse. Then he hit her. And then he started kicking and beating her and ripping her clothes off, and he raped her in front of 30 people. And people recorded it on their phones. That city got one 911 call 10 minutes 
after it started. They call that the bystander effect. And they asked one of them as they interviewed these people, and a person said, I didn't want to get involved because he might start beating me. Involvement means vulnerability. Getting involved means you might get attacked. Getting involved means you can't stay distant and stay safe. We want to stay distant. We want to stay safe. And it horrifies us to hear that. But here's the thing. If we were in that moment, would, be the, would we be willing to be the first one, the only one maybe, to step in and try to make a difference? Because involvement can really cost you. It can cost you, I mean, not just in, in, the, in any situation. Involvement can cost you time. It can cost you finances. It can cost you physical safety. You know, the Bible mentions in a number of places that God hears the cries of his people. God went to, um, to Cain and said, your brother Abel's blood is crying out to me. I hear it. He told Moses, he said, Moses, I have heard the cries of my people. I must do something. Jesus heard the cries and he came to earth to die for us. Jesus got involved. He got involved. You know, sometimes, I've said this before, because this is what we're talking about, is we're talking about Christmas. We're talking about the incarnation. Jesus decided to get involved. And, and I, I'll say sometimes, one of the things about the incarnation is that God became huggable. You know, God became this baby, and then he became this person that you could hug. God became huggable. But also the flip side of that is God became killable when he became a human being. And he knew that was coming. So we ask, where is our, our focus? We ask, are we willing to get involved in people's lives? And then Jesus faced the darkness and he triumphed over it. And we can too. Why? Because he's a wonderful counselor. Um, you know, if you've ever had serious surgery, there's that time, you know, they get you in there and they start talking to you, you know, and you put on the, the gown that everyone loves to wear. And, uh, and at some point they say, okay, say goodbye to everybody. And they start wheeling you on this gurney. Um, when I had surgery, heart surgery a while back, I can remember that was a big part of it. I, I wasn't going to sleep. I kept telling them, I'm not going to sleep. I, I, I'm awake. Don't pick me into that room yet. And they started wheeling me, and all of a sudden I was like, okay, God, this is it. I mean, this is it. Here we go. You and me, right? And it was, um, it was scary. It was dark. Jesus faced that darkness. He tasted it. He experienced it. You may be experiencing pain. Jesus faced that pain. You may be experiencing darkness. He faced that pain. He tasted it. He experienced it fully. You can trust him because he knows. If you're feeling betrayed, if you're feeling lonely, if you're feeling broken, if you're facing death, he's been there. And he won that battle for you, for you. 
And I know, I get this, people come up and they say, Bob, I, I, you don't understand. You know, I, I prayed, I prayed for something so hard and he didn't answer me. I feel like he's abandoned me. I gently, and I don't say it quite like that, but I'm gently, I just think, or say, have you ever heard of Gethsemane? He prayed so hard. And there was no answer. It was a no. Have you ever heard of the cross? He was betrayed and he was abandoned on that cross. He knows how, he knows how it is. He triumphed in it. And then this is it. You can too. You can too. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you accepted Christ as your Savior, and now you're beginning to try to live for God with your life, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can become victorious just like he was. You can be just like Jesus. And he calls us to that. He calls these Hebrew Christians who are struggling in their faith, and some are in enduring um, difficult issues, he calls them to that. You know, I, when I think about a broken world, um, we see it all the time. We, we see it in our lives. This church, um, we have been involved with the homeless for years and years and, and uh, been, tried to help in various means at different times and different ways. And uh, I still struggle with how to respond to homeless people. I really struggle with that. I, I don't give them money because I've seen where that money tends to go. But, you know, you, you still, it's such a struggle figuring out what to do. These are men and these are women who have faces. They have names. At some point, they were babies. They were fearfully and wonderfully made. They're made in the image of God. And now uh, they have been subject to the decay of, of what's going on in our world all around us for whatever reason. And it was a few years back, and I'd kind of forgotten about it until I was studying this, and it kind of popped in my head. Um, I was going to Panera, and there was a woman sitting there, and she was asking for food. And I said, oh, listen, sure. I mean, I, if people ask for food, I'm always willing to buy them food. And I said, I would love to go in. I'll get you a bagel and, uh, you know, with some cream cheese and a cup of coffee. You know, would that be great? And she says, well, no, actually, what I would like is I'd like a bowl of mac and cheese and a bowl of soup and a cup of coffee. And I was like, oh, because I mean, like a bagel's a buck and a quarter. And mac and cheese and soup and the twofer is like $12.50. But I didn't say that. I, you know, I'm too good of a Christian to say that. But this will, oh gosh, this will let you know a little bit. Let me let you into a little bit of the darkness that is my heart. As I walked through the double door, because there's two doors, so the first one closed and I knew she couldn't hear me. I said, maybe they'll have caviar I can add to it too. And I walked in. And I just, as soon as I said that, I felt horrible that I would even think that thought. And some of you are looking, come on, get off your, get off your high horse now. Some of you look at me like, that pastor, he's a horrible man. Yeah. Yeah. So I got what she wanted, and I came back out, and I gave it to her, and she just said, thank you so much. She said, you know, I love bagels, but my teeth are so painful. I can't chew anything that's hard to chew. And I'm like, 
oh, I hate myself. <laughs> you know, you just, I, you, my cold heart was exposed. We, I need my cold heart to be exposed. Because then what it does is it forces me to focus on Jesus, to run to Jesus and ask him for forgiveness. And I, I, it, that woman, God used her to call me, to slap me and get my attention. Because I was willing to get her something because that was kind of my job, right? And God is like, that's not what I want from you, Bob. I don't want your job. I want you to do it with your heart. Because here's the thing, you know, you think about it. This goes to what we talked about, about human beings. Human beings are people of dignity. And that's what happens. I think one of the worst issues of homelessness is the lack of dignity. I know there's economic things involved too, and I don't know what the answer is to everything, but I do know this. I know dignity is a huge part of it. Because if people treat you as if you were trash, or people never know your name, or no one knows your story, or no one even cares to ask about your story, then your dignity is gone. And that's what God is, wants us to see here. We are fearfully and wonderfully made, created with dignity. We blew it. And so what did Jesus do? He made himself. He came from up there to down here. May it be on earth as it is in heaven. That's the Lord's prayer. Bring heaven down to earth. And he died for us so that we could begin to live for what we're made for. People who love and serve and are vulnerable to other people. And in doing that, we fulfill what we were made for. We bring about this kingdom. We usher people into the presence of Jesus Christ. There's nothing you can do with your life that is more important than that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true. We thank you for this book that is written. The author has not even identified who they are. I believe for the purpose of pointing more to you, of making our focus more on you. And so, Lord, as we leave this place, help us to see those people around us who are struggling with dignity. People who are annoying, people who upset us, people who oftentimes say the wrong thing at the wrong time. Help us to be the ones that still love and serve. And we can only do this, Lord, because of what you've done for us. Through the power of the Spirit, we are able to become Jesus in other people's lives. Help us to want to do that, Lord. We thank you, Father, the many opportunities that you will give us this week to be Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.